In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Welcome back to our study of Job. I'm Ian, and this is the Sailor Time to Pause podcast from Plexus Salvation Army, an online church in the UK. I will stop and breathe in your presence, just breathe, just breathe. Boy does that scripture we read earlier throw up a load of questions, difficult questions, questions that I didn't have the answer to. I needed to go away and read how other people had tried to answer them. And then those answers just threw up a load more questions, questions I still don't have the answer to and some that I don't think I ever will. The biggest question though was this, can it be? The passage shows us that our God is in control of what happens to Job. But it also tells us that Job is going to suffer for no good reason. Yet, how can that be? Surely, if our loving God is in control, then Job should not have to face the coming torment. Can it really be that God is in control of Job's story? Surely, if Job does eventually suffer, this would be proof that our God is not in control. Or at least show us that God's character is not what we think it is. Could it even be that it's God's plan for Satan to attack Job? How can it be? But these questions are not confined to some academic Bible study of the first chapter of Job. 
They face us in real life. In the world that you and I inhabit, there are questions that come at us that we do not always have an answer to. It's one thing for Christian authors and megachurch pastors and theologians in their ivory towers to write books to explain the things of God whilst churning out simple, memorable phrases that can be made into posters or shared over social media. But at the sharp end of life, things are never as clear-cut as their simple answers might suggest. Real life is messy, and there are times when bad things happen, and I just want to cry out with those same questions. How can it be? How can God be in control of the world whilst at the same time the world is as it is? When we consider refugees from wars, or famines, droughts, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes and cyclones, economic collapses, sexual exploitation and human trafficking, the drug trade, the mental health crisis, sexual violence, suicide bombers, religious and ethnic persecution, Ebola epidemics, malarial outbreaks, Covid, then how can our God be in control? When there are desperate parents who do not know where their children's next meal will come from. When families are forced to flee their homes and walk for weeks to find safety from armed conflict or persecution. When natural disasters destroy homes and livelihoods, while we continue to preach of a loving God in control of the world, can it be so? Job's story confronts us with the difficulty of trying to believe in a loving God while suffering also exists in the world. How can both of these things be true? When we try to explore our faith in the light of the reality of suffering, if we're not careful, then we tend to come to one of two conclusions. Either that God is not truly all-powerful, or that God is not loving. Some Christians think that good things come from God and bad things come from Satan. Their faith is formed around the idea of two forces battling for control of the heavens, two separate entities, one good and one evil which are equally powerful. On one side sits God, whilst on the other sits Satan, two powerful deities whose battlefield is the earth and its people. When faced with the reality of suffering in the world, we may tell ourselves that it's because Satan's evil schemes are succeeding. The battle is underway and whatever suffering we see on earth is little more than collateral damage in the war. Our pain results from Satan's blitzkrieg and God's inability to stop it. Or we think it's even worse. And we conclude that our pain comes from God's unwillingness to prevent it. The logical conclusion is that God is indifferent towards us, a passive, impersonal force. Across the vastness of space, atoms collide, planets form, and natural events follow their course without any needing input from a nurturing and sustaining deity. And a dispassionate God watches on, unconcerned by what some creatures on a ball of mud hurtling through space around an insignificant star about what they may call to choose their suffering. Bilal Phillips, the Muslim theologian, taught that God is beyond our morality and above the affairs of man. Allah is greater than everything in our life. Even if we accept the abstract notion of a loving God, then we're forced to conclude that God loves all humanity, not the individuals. He loves us, but he doesn't love me and he doesn't love you. 
Epicurus puts it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? And his dangerous conclusion then inevitably comes. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Today's reading, however, makes the point to us that God is in control and that God loves Job. As Psalm 62 puts it, Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. The story shows that Satan is not God. Satan cannot do what he wants to. He cannot touch Job until God allows him to. The truth is that although Satan has some power, he's no equal to God Almighty. His power is clearly limited and less than God's power. According to scripture, there's no dualism, no two opposing forces of equal power called good and evil. Although there is a cosmic fight between good and evil, it's not an equal fight. God is the creator, Satan merely a creature. Satan is not God's equal and one day revelation shows us that one day evil will come to an end. In fact, after Job chapter 2, we do not read about Satan at all. For all that we may focus on the devil in our suffering, in the very book which looks at exactly this point, Satan is not very important. When we suffer, the important person to think about is God. We don't blame Satan, instead we trust God. Somehow we need to find another way to resolve this tension than to doubt God's power or his love. So we rethink how to explain that God is in control and yet suffering is real. And we come to the conclusion that we need to see the bigger picture than the one immediately in front of our eyes. We may tell ourselves that our suffering is ultimately for our good, like a doctor explaining an unpleasant treatment regimen, while causing short-term suffering is the best method of a cure. If the patient had greater knowledge and could only see the more detailed picture that they as the doctor can see, then the patient would accept the present temporary suffering as it's there to heal them. We may tell ourselves that our suffering is ultimately for our future benefit, perhaps like a parent talking to a child they're punishing. If the child had greater life experience and could only see the more nuanced picture that they as the parent can see, then the child would accept the present temporary suffering as it is there to teach them. We may tell ourselves that our suffering is part of God's greater plan, like the chess player who might sacrifice a piece, even his queen, to further a greater strategy for victory. If the sacrificed piece could lift itself up and see the whole board that the player can see, then the sacrificed piece would accept its fate as its self-sacrifice would eventually accomplish its greater goal. The argument for seeing the greater picture is often described as the argument of God's tapestry. It's best summed up by the Holocaust hero Corrie ten Boom in her poem Life is But a Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. 
Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skilful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. But still, our suffering is real. And Job's story shows us that whilst it may, it does not necessarily serve any greater purpose. As Job's story progresses, we will see his various sufferings, but Job's story also gives us insight into the heavenly realm, the hidden world of which Job is unaware. If there were to be any meaning, any greater picture, or any grand scheme in which Job's suffering plays some greater part, then it would be here in heaven, in the discussion between the Lord and his heavenly court. But we find none. And it would surely be a stretch too far to claim that Job had to suffer in order that I could just write this podcast. Job's suffering is real, and it serves no particular purpose. Job suffers simply because the Satan has schemed to bring it about. He suffers simply because evil exists. Yes, Sometimes we, like Corrie ten Boom, may be able to find a greater picture that will give meaning to some of our suffering, but equally there will be times when the only explanation we can find for the existence of suffering in the world, the only explanation we can find for we at times may suffer, is simply that we live in a fallen world. The earth is not how God planned it to be. Through our own free will and the free will of others, we humans give in to temptations and sometimes we give in to evil desires. Over recent weeks, I, perhaps like you, have not been able to put out of my mind the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, where yet again the news broke of students and staff who were shot dead in a place they should have been safe. As I record this, In the USA, in this year alone, there have been 225 killed and 658 injured in mass shootings so far. In those acts, I can see no greater picture which might mitigate such suffering. In fact, it seems abhorrent to me to even try to apply such an argument. I can see no grand scheme of God which might justify those senseless crimes. They are acts of evil and that, is simply that. They happen because evil exists in the world and sometimes people choose the evil path. They happen because we live in a fallen world full of fallen people. The truth is that when Job's story confronts us with the difficulty of trying to believe in a loving God while suffering also exists in the world, there is no answer, at least no easy one. And even if there is, The answer itself will be a paradox. As Christians seeking to live in the real world, we need to find a way to live within this paradoxical but faithful tension. Paradox is unsettling. 
Having pieces of truth scattered across the table without knowing where they fit into the puzzle can be threatening. And it's doubly threatening, of course, when others tell us all the pieces should fit smoothly and that their puzzles have been fully assembled for years. Paradox is also draining. Paradoxes demand that we wrestle with truths, not shake hands with them. The struggle is intellectually, emotionally and spiritually taxing. Paradoxes express the mysterious, undefinable qualities of faith and life that defy logic. Like unusual stones found in the bottom of a prospector's pan, we keep coming back to them, rolling them over in our palms and pondering their secrets. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, The great minds are those with a wide span, that couple truths related to, but far removed from each other. In Job, we face the loving God-suffering world tension, not as an abstract theological debate, but as a painful flesh and blood dilemma. Ultimately, Job realises no simple solution is possible. The paradox has opened a door to a mysterious and unsearchable God. By living this paradox, Job is forced to ask whether his faith is in God or in what he knows and can understand about God. At the end of his personal struggle with this paradox, it's significant that Job cries out not, I understand, but I repent. When we read the story of Job, we know that God is in control. But the scenes in heaven that we are privy to are hidden from Job. Yet, by faith, Job knows that God is behind everything that he suffers. Later on, in chapter 13, Job will even say that if God kills him, he will still trust God. It's hard to understand that God will sometimes let us suffer. When something bad happens to you, it's hard to believe that a loving God has allowed it, but he has. When we accept that, and accept that we may never understand that, there can be great comfort to know that God is in control of the hard things that happen to us. Even when we suffer, we're in God's strong, caring hands, not the devil's hating hands. Perhaps especially when we suffer, we need to know that. Especially then, we are in God's all-powerful, loving hands. Trust the one who whispers peace Although the winds and waves Would threaten to confound me You walked upon the ancient seas He still can calm the storm in me 
I cannot see in the night that lies before me But I hold the hand that made the stars My faith is firm in the one who watches over me His steadfast love will be my guard He will forever hold my heart I'm in His hands I'm in His hands Whatever the future holds I'm in His hands The days I cannot see Have all been planned for me His way is best You see I'm in his hands In days gone by You have always been my portion when I have yielded to your love So here I stand alive in you And available for you to use me Take all my life For your glory, Jesus Christ I'm in your hands I'm in your hands Whatever the future holds I'm in your hands The days I cannot see Have all been planned for me Your way is best I know This has been Say Lard Time to Pause, a podcast from Plexus Salvation Army. 
an online church in the UK. I'm Ian. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sam. If you've enjoyed journeying with us over these last few weeks, join us every Monday. Or any day that works for you. To spend time together, taking time out to pause, catch our breath, draw near to God and refresh our spirits. We share Bible teachings, reflections on songs we're listening to, and on what's going on in the world around us. As well as this, on the last day of the month, we look back and reflect, share any thoughts from our listener community, and ask what we can take from it into our daily living. What we call our personal So What's for the month. Join us, making us part of your regular routine, spending a few minutes to listen to what God might be saying to you. Find us on your favourite podcast streaming service, on Facebook or YouTube by searching for Selah. That's S-E-L-A-H. Time to pause.